Hey everybody, Neil Thompson here. I want to let you know about the Teach the Geek to Speak Society. What is it? Glad you asked. It's a monthly membership whereby you get access to my public speaking course, Teach the Geek to Speak. You also get access to a private Facebook group and monthly Zoom calls. Get ongoing support in your efforts to improve your public speaking. To learn more about the membership, click on the link in the show notes. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking out the monthly membership called the Teach the Geek to Speak Society. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Tara Rutley. NASA Associate Chief Scientist is one way to describe her, but keynote speaker is another. So I'm really interested to learn more about her journey into public speaking, her path to NASA, and her reasoning for getting all her degrees, and she has quite a bit of them. <laughs> Welcome to Teach the Geek interview, Dr. Rutley. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. I think you've got a really great podcast going on. I've managed to watch a few episodes, so thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. So first things first, I just, I just mentioned it. You have more degrees than I think I've ever seen anyone in the history of the world ever have. And, and, <laughs> There are worse. There are worse. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this woman must really like school because she has degrees in biology, mechanical engineering, archaeology, and neuroscience. So what (laughs) what was the motivation for you getting all these degrees? Honestly, when you put it that way, I'm having to evaluate in my brain why I did all that. And honestly, I think it's because um, I came from a family, I was born and raised in Louisiana, and my family had never gone to college and never, some, most hadn't even graduated high school. But I knew that I always wanted to, uh, I, I loved space, I always wanted to be an astronaut, I always wanted to work for NASA. So I think looking back on all this, I probably have all these different degrees because uh, I didn't know what would work. Right. No one told me go this route, go that route. So I just did what I was interested in and I'm constantly planning, going for the next thing, seeing an opportunity, taking that, going for the next thing, seeing that opportunity. That looks fun. Uh, these degrees, they're there. Um, I didn't need all of them to get into NASA. But what I found was I don't know what's next after NASA. So this is what I'm always, this is like, I think how I'm programmed to think like NASA is my career. I've been here 20 years, but the archaeology degree, the archaeology program was something I've been interested in since I was a kid as well. So I did that for fun. But if you're going to do it for fun, why not get the credit for it? Who knows what's going to happen after I leave NASA? And then, so now I'm prepared for even that. Um, but mostly it's just I, I've been following what I love. You know, with biology, that's what I love. Science is my core love, biology. And when I was, well, let's see, probably in high school, we took a field trip from Louisiana to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And I got to ask an astronaut, what do you do to be an astronaut? What do I need to do? And he said, quite honestly, it's hard to be an astronaut. Even the best are just not selected. So you're not guaranteed to be selected. So do what you love. Do what you love. You'll become an expert at it and and make sure it's in the fields that we hire for. And when you're an expert and you're happy, that's who we want to hire as astronauts. So don't just do something because it looks good on your resume. Now, that is how I ended up going to college for biology. Now, 
when I was in biology as an undergrad, uh, I joined a bunch of um, aerospace clubs because that's what I loved. But I was like the only biologist who was ever showing up to these engineer clubs, right? So, um, so I made a lot of engineering friends. And what I realized is some projects that I wanted to design as a biologist, uh, space type projects, needed the help of mechanical engineers. I needed, I needed to know these people. I couldn't make the designs. I couldn't cut metal. I couldn't, you know, put pieces together that I was the biologist. Uh, so I, I got to be friends with them and I learned how to do all these things. And just as I was about to graduate with my bachelor's in biology, they, they said, you know, students said, you know, you should go for a master's in mechanical engineering. I'm like, no way, man. I am not an engineer. I don't want to be an engineer. All my life, I was told if I wanted to work for NASA, I needed to be an engineer. I'm going for science. I'm going to apply to the PhD programs in neuroscience because that's what I love. They kept bringing it up. And so I said, well, you know what? Fine. I'm just going to apply, uh, see what happens. Right. So I applied and lo and behold, I got into that program. And now that that's a real, a real possibility, I saw it as an opportunity. So um, I, I went ahead and, and completed my master's degree in mechanical engineering. And just as I was wrapping up that degree, uh, I submitted my resume to NASA. They were having a huge job fair. We want the best and the brightest, the next generation, submit your resumes. But oh, by the way, we're in a hiring freeze. So we can't really like, hire you now, but just give us your resume. So I turned in my resume, like that'll probably never happen. And they actually called me two days later because they had a critical hire. They were starting a new division in the engineering directorate at the Johnson Space Center. And they needed someone with my dual background in biology and mechanical engineering to join them in making exercise equipment and medical equipment for the astronauts on the International Space Station. So I, I'm like, well, I can't turn that up. That's I can't turn that down. That's like my dream job. So that's how I ended up actually starting as an engineer at NASA. And uh, once I got my feet wet in engineering after the first year, I went ahead and pursued my PhD at the same time in neuroscience at the University of Texas Medical Branch, which was just a 30 minute drive away. So I was doing both. And uh, once I completed that degree, which is what I really wanted, I left engineering and I went to work in the space station science office, where then it was truly about the science that's happening on our international space station, about 250 miles above our head right now. There's anywhere from three to six to seven, sometimes more now, uh, astronauts that live on that space station 24 seven. And they've been doing that for the past 20 years as we rotate people out, sometimes up to six months at a time. And they're up there doing science experiments. So that's what I've been doing uh, most of my career at NASA. I've been here 20 years now, and it's all been, a, it's all been about the space station. And for the last 10 years, it's been about managing and talking about the science that's happening on the space station. Wow. That's an interesting story. So I know you, you <laughs> well, I know you'd mentioned that you initially, it was becoming an astronaut. Well, that was the, that was the thing for you. When did you realize that that just wasn't in the cards? Probably in May, <laughs> just a couple, a couple months ago. Uh, no, honestly, it's not that yet. It's not that yet. So uh, NASA's astronaut cycle happens every four years, and there's thousands and thousands of applicants, and they usually select only eight. Uh, so I've applied to every single one, and on one of them, I, I managed to get down to the semifinalist group, the last 120 of us through the interview process. So I keep applying, and, and it's funny you ask, and I said May, because they're going through a 
selection cycle right now. And so a big group of us just learned like in May and just a couple of weeks ago that we didn't make the cut. So what do you do? You just, you have to just keep applying. And in the meantime, do what you love. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm still doing what I love. I'm still good at it. And, and that I'm not going to quit. So you just have to keep going. Gotcha. Is there a, is there an age cutoff to become an astronaut? It's a good question. No, there is not an age cutoff, but that is surely in the back of my mind because as we do get older, our systems and our bodies change and they become um, less fit. Even, even if you're healthy and fit, you can work all you want, but things like bone or um, muscle and things, your body uh, starts to age. And so NASA, you have to be able to still pass certain fitness requirements for NASA because we want explorers who can go to other planets and not hurt themselves. So there's not really an age restriction. Most of the astronauts get selected in the range of mid to late 30s, and I'm I'm past that. So it, it is in the back of my mind. And so uh, things change all the time, though. So we have new launch vehicles going to space station. If any of your viewers watched, we now are launching. SpaceX is launching our astronauts to station, and then we'll have Boeing launching astronauts to station, and then Blue Origin is sending people into suborbital flights. So my message is things change a lot. We're about to go back to the moon to stay for longer than we stayed for Apollo. Um, we're trying to make access to the space station more accessible to others. So for me, the dream goes on until someone outright tells me the program is done. Do not even bother. <laughs> we're done, right? There are all, all kinds of creative ways. And, and I like to say, if someone tells you no, you just keep asking or you go to a different person, you ask again and you go and you ask again and things change. Sometimes you'll get to a yes. Wow, that's a, that's impressive that you keep replying you know, all these all these times. But you know, another it's thing, not for the weak heart. You know, no, no questions. Doesn't sound like it. And something you actually said kind of kind of pricked my ears when it came to you know working at NASA and the idea of becoming an astronaut being the goal. But since that's a goal that you don't really or something something that you don't you you that you do not control, you have to be selected. And the best, yep. the next best thing is to do what you really like, which is something that you can control. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the problem people have is not knowing what they want. I haven't been lucky to know exactly since I was the third grade what I want, but I've got a 14 year old who does not know what she wants. I don't know what that's like, but if you know what you really, really want, you just, all that's left is to find the path to get you there. And no matter how many no's you get, there's always another path. There's another path. Uh, and so you know what, what? And also, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can look. I can look back and right now and say, "Oh, it's good I wasn't selected then because this happened." When you're in that, you don't see it. You don't see it, right? Like all you see in loss is loss. Take take the time to grieve. It's good to grieve, and then pick up and move again because there are you. Ha everybody's born with a gift. Everybody's got something to contribute. So people are waiting for you. People need you. So just keep going, right? Find what you love. Because because your 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 intention is to help people, and that's what will happen if you if you're doing what you love. So when you started working, you started working at at NASA developing uh, medical equipment or equipment for the International Space Station. I'm I don't know, perhaps perhaps I'm ignorant, but at least when I hear that, there's not a whole lot of of communication or, or public speaking that's involved with that. It was there, and if there was, and if there wasn't, I mean that's cool. But when did you see? Or when did you understand the benefit of being able to communicate with others that it could be useful in your job? 
That's a real. That's actually a really insightful question, Neil. Um, when I was an engineer, I didn't do a whole lot of outreach or talking in public. I was making my hardware and delivering it to station. When I left engineering and joined the space station program, it was a funky set of timing because when I joined the space station science office, we were a tiny little science office of nerds in a big engineering vehicle organization of engineers that just wanted to build that thing, build the station, put parts together, launch rockets to it. And, and we scientists were saying, well, you have to do science on the station. It's a laboratory. That's why we built it in the first place. So I joined just as we were finishing building the thing. And now all the attention came to science. What are we going to do with it? So it was my job to work with the, with the uh, space station chief scientists to start to tell people why that matters. And she was a very busy person. So I had been in the office maybe four or five months working with her when a, a, a request came up through a, a newspaper. Um, it was a, a newspaper article wanted to interview us and wanted to find out more about space station. So she said, I'm busy, Tara, you take it. And I was like, uh, like, this is this is like I don't this is a newspaper article. Like, are you sure? Because you're the chief. And she's like, you got this, right? So they interviewed me and I tell them why why space station's important for science and um, why you can only do science, uh, certain types of science without gravity. And that's the point. And then the, the article, and I was pretty proud of myself, the article comes out and the title, which they put these things on after, they put titles on, headlines on after, but the headline was, Is NASA's International Space Station really worth hundred billion dollars or something like that. And I was like, oh, is that what this was about? You know, so that was my first experience with public public media, like giving messages out. Since then I've learned the things that, you know, really what's your what's your spend on this article gonna be? You may not know the title, but what's your real spend? Uh, now I know that I have public affairs officers to help me out here with messaging if I get uh, stuck. Um, I also now know to, uh, you know, like, uh, do a little research before um, and, and maybe even ask what kind of questions they're going to ask me so I can better prepare. It went over well, thank, thank goodness, but I sure learned a lot and I got just getting my feet wet in the first six months. And fortunately, as far as things go, it was good. It could have been a disaster, <laughs> but mostly I started public speaking uh, more and more because my chief was just busy doing it too. So she just needed someone to fill in for her. And so the first press briefing I ever had to do was for us for a launch. And I remember sitting in the office with her, the chief, she's the chief scientist of station and our public affairs officer. And, I, and I'd seen her do many of these. And I said, okay, I said out loud, I said, okay, so how am I gonna do this like she does it? I need to be able to do it like she does it. And, and our public affairs officer said, no, you do it like you do it. She's got her thing, you do it as if you would do it. You do it as Tara Rutley. And when he said that, that was that kind of gave me the okay to just be myself and have fun with it as much as I could and try to be interactive with people and interactive with the media and the people at home watching a bunch of us in suits talking about space. How is that fun? How would I make it fun? So um, since he told me that, I've been able to just, I study up on everything I'm talking about beforehand. Um, and, and I also know that I can't be everything to every scientist out there because part of my job is communicating about others' science. It's not even my own research, which is a very large burden to bear, talking about all the scientists you know, in the background who want you to get it right. Not only do they want you to get it right, they want you to share the details of everything. And you know, the public doesn't necessarily need to know every detail. They just need to know, so what and why? 
And sometimes it's fun to know how. Um, but so, so, you know, trying to communicate for a group of scientists, uh, I got my feet wet. I learned some things the hard way. I learned things easier. I don't know everything about all the science happening. So I will call the scientists and ask them to talk to me in English about it. Uh, I will use Google to, to learn more about fluid behaviors and things like that. Uh, just it, what the degrees, what all of the degrees and, and all those degrees you asked about, what it taught me was how to think and ask questions and how to do research. Uh, if you stop that, you're not you're you're not you're not as good of a scientist anymore, and you're definitely not as good of a communicator. Mm, interesting. So, when it comes to the the presentations that you have to do in front of people, is do you have any sort of, of process for putting them together? And if so, what is it? Yeah, the process is telling a story. So, if I'm going to tell you about that, we have an international space station. I can tell you things like. The International Space Station is located 250 miles above head. It's the size of a football field. It, you know, can support six to seven people six months a year at a time. And I would sit here like this, and that's cool. But it's way different if I said, you guys, think of a city that you know 250 miles from you. You probably know a city you may go or the capital of your state. Okay, that doesn't seem very far. That is where the International Space Station is above head. And that thing goes around the Earth once every 90 minutes at 17,500 miles per hour. Hair flying back, right? That's fast, but it's not even that far. But the reason we go is because that's the only place that we can do super cool experiments without that gravity vector in the way. So if you think about a science experiment that you've ever done in school on Earth, think about what that might look like if you took gravity away. It might do all kinds of funky things and you don't know. And sometimes we don't either. And that's why we do that. When we do these things in space, we get new knowledge that contributes to Earth, that contributes to space exploration. That's your medicine. That's your education. Right. So you you make it personal. I sit down. I try to tell a story. And when I use visuals, when I use PowerPoint slides, what one of the first things that my chief taught me was less words is better use a picture and speak to the picture. Use a picture and speak to the picture. I mean, if you need to use speaker's notes, that's fine, use speaker's notes, don't sit there and read it, but use them for your bullet points, for your remembering, I don't wanna to forget to say this. But if you're looking at a picture, it's so much more engaging and sharing a picture and talking about the picture than the words on the slides. And we, a couple years ago, uh, created a new program uh, for science communication at NASA, specifically targeted towards our scientists. And we hired the Alan Alda Center for Science Communication to come in and teach us things like um, improv and, and telling a story uh, in a way that's colorful with nothing in front of you. You have no slides, you have no pictures, but you can tell a story that's visual and it impacts the minds. And it, and it, and it reaches the audience. What are, are your stories relevant? You can sit there and talk about yourself all day long, which is great. People find your stories great, but how do they relate to them? How, how do you relate to the audience and how, do, how does it matter to them? So um, when I sit down and, and put together a presentation, those are the things I'm thinking about. Telling stories, who's my audience, what's gonna matter to them? Um, yeah, I'll use science jargon, but I'll probably explain it or use it in a fun way. Um, and then I want to leave the audience with uh, something. I want to leave them with something new that they've learned. So in the end, I might say, I might give them more resources to go. If I've captured your attention, you'll go to nasa.gov forward slash ISS dash science, and you'll learn more. 
um, or, you know, the next time I'll be speaking or NASA will be in your neighborhood is here. Or if you want to see where the space station is, and by the way, you can see it with the naked eye at night because it's the size of a football field. You can see it as it goes overhead. If you get the app called Spot the Station, it'll tell you, it'll send you a text message when and where to look over at your head at night, right? So I leave them with one with ways to learn more and become part of the, the space family. I really like your, your tip about using less words and using images, Dr. Rutley. I'm a big proponent of that as well, because it, it accomplishes two things. Firstly, it as the presenter, you don't have that crutch of being able to read your slides. And when That's you, right. because when you do that, you're, it's very difficult to engage the audience. But then not only that, then the audience also doesn't have the option of reading your slides. They either have to listen to what you have to say or ignore you. And so I figure yep. if, you if you eliminate one of those options, now it's a one in two chance they actually listen. So I like those odds better. All right. You're right. And you know what else? Um, when you're up, if, if, you're, if your audience is listening to me right now, there are scientists and engineers. When you're up talking about your work, man, make them realize how cool it is. Like, don't... It, like they have no idea what you're going to introduce them to a lot of times. They have never thought about your work. They've never thought about your discipline. They have no idea. Show them the cool images, man, and talk to the cool, show them the cool videos. Or, or even if you mention what a day in the life is like of yours, pick a day that's not all answering emails because that's for real too. Um, but they have no idea. So share it with them visually, like take them along. Don't just talk at them. Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever get nervous before you give a presentation? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Sometimes, yes. Uh, and it's mostly if I'm giving a presentation on something that's not my expertise in science. And how do I deal with that? Prep, prep, prep. Read everything I can. Make all the phone calls I can. Ask the questions that I can. Um, and, um, and, and admit, even sometimes, I'll admit, when I'm up speaking to a group of astrophysicists, that I am not an astrophysicist. But here's my here's what's going on on the International Space Station. So be upfront too. If you're if you're representing a, a subject that you're not so strong in, it's okay. Let them know that. Um, but but you're still there to communicate about it, and you're willing to even learn from your audience. So for me, mostly though, I will print things out. I'm a printer. I print things out. I mark them up. I carry it with me around. I read it. Mark it up again. Read it. Type up speaker's notes, bullet points, read that. And then I won't use that to speak, but I might have them like in my back pocket or with I like close to me. So if I needed to reach out, like, you know, in the worst case panic, they're there. Um, now I have been guilty of doing press briefings. Uh, of, I have my notes in front of me. And if you go back, you can find some of these press briefings where the camera's on you and I'm reading my notes. And when I go back and I watch that, it's awful because my eyes are down. And I have, you know, I have a pretty blue eyes. Your view, your your audience, your, your speakers want to look up at the camera. You have great eyes, you know, like they don't want to see you looking down, you know. So so that's something I still have to get over just even as of a couple of years ago. So I try not to have the notes because you said it's a crutch. I'll have the bullet points. And then I have to get myself into telling the story about that bullet point. But preparation is everything. It always has been for me. How do you deal with situations where you get a question that you don't know the answer to? I've been there. Um, if I get that question and maybe I'm on a panel of people with me, I will just, I've gotten out at a news briefing before I, I leaned over and asked a couple people down. I said, I'm not sure the answer to that, but how about you, Mike? Um, do, you do you know that answer? And Mike knew the answer. If I'm by myself, 
I will say, honestly, I don't know. I haven't thought about that, but I'm happy to get back with you. Um, or I don't know the answer, but I know where you can find it. Go find it here. I don't, I don't have the answer offhand, but go find it at this website um, or, or, or the like. But the first thing we were taught as biologists uh, was never BS, never BS your work, right? People will see right through that. And the last thing you want to do is, is give in correct information. So if I'm not really certain, uh, I won't, I won't give the answer. And I'll just admit, I don't know. That's a great question. I'll go find it out. I, I'm happy to get back with you or I'll ask someone else in the room if they know. I, I'm happy to engage the audience. <laughs> well, you, that's a, that's a smart way to, to answer or to, to handle that situation, Dr. Rutley. I wish I was that <laughs> smart when I first started giving presentations because <laughs> no, I, I, no, no, I'd lie. I'd lie. If I didn't know the answer, I'd make something up. And then, Dang, and, man. Yeah, I, I, I did that. And uh, because a lot of them, when I started giving presentations, I was giving them in front of senior management and none of them were technical. So it's not that anyone could call me out at it anyway. They, they, they wouldn't well, that's know. That's true. But, but that's I, true. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. But I, eventually I became <laughs> more mature and I realized, you know what? It's okay to not know. And it was my own insecurity in, in lying. And that's why I was doing it. But once I became more secure in myself, I realized it's okay to not know everything. There's no one on the earth knows everything. And if anything, when you get a question you don't know, once you figure out the answer to it, it just makes your presentation stronger because now you have, you have more expertise, you have more knowledge That's on so the subject. True. But you're right. I think it does take a certain level of maturity. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned something earlier that I thought was really interesting that you, you brought in people to help the scientists with their, with their presenting in front of others because you know a lot of us as scientists, engineers, we're not all that adept at it. If you were to give any tips on becoming more effective in public speaking to people watching or even the scientists that you work with, what would those tips be? Uh, the tips would be tell your work like it's a story. Tell it as a story. Um, you know, the jargon's cool. You know, neutrinos and quarks are tiny little things smaller than atoms. You know, well, all we've learned about is atoms and dark matter and dark energy is sexy. But um, tell it, why, why do people care about dark matter or dark energy? Why? Why care? Oh, because, you know, 95% of what's out there, we can't even see. We only see 5% of our whole universe. The rest is invisible, but we know it's there. How cool is that as a human being? So speak to their core as humans. Uh, we all want to know where we are, who, where we came from, or, you know, why we're here. All, all of your scientific research, probably what you're working on for engineering and technology, is all it's all because of us. So make it important to the human condition and speak like you're speaking to your grandma at Thanksgiving. Not only that, make it like a minute or less. Don't don't keep going on and on unless they ask questions. Um, you know, it doesn't. It, you don't want to seem like you're disinterested in them asking. But six, I would say always have an elevator pitch ready in 60 seconds or less about how you can talk about the kind of work that you're doing in plain terms. So work on that. If you don't have an elevator pitch, work on building one. Just 60 seconds or less what work you're doing and why it's important, who should care. Um, and then tell it as a story. And then if you can say, you know, tie your story in always, if you're giving a presentation, you should always have some kind of story, whether it's about yourself or about, you know, in my case, how long it, how we built the space station or what kind of ingenuity it took or why we're doing it in the first place, tell that story. And then um, just have fun, relax. I know it's really hard if you're nervous and you're in front of a crowd, and it, but it takes practice. And, and people love hu humility. 
people like to see you goof up and make mistakes because it makes them feel like they're not the only one. So if you make a mistake, shake it off and go, you know, come up with some humor, use some humor, um, try to make your audience laugh, just relax and learn something. You, they want to learn something from you. They want to be inspired. So just work with them and, and recognize that they're there. Recognize that your audience is there. They're not invisible. They are with you on this. Yeah. I was long-winded. I should work <laughs> on that. <laughs> no, well, maybe we figure out an elevator pitch for the answer, I guess. 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah, <I should. laughs> this, this has been great speaking with you, I'll Dr. Rutley. Thank you so much for taking time. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, you can go to www.tararutley.com. You can find me there. I'm on LinkedIn. And then all of my work is uh, at, at nasa.gov forward slash ISS dash science. I say my work, but it's really our work, the space station's work. So I'm out there and happy to connect. Excellent. Well, everybody, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Please consider checking out the monthly membership, Teach the Geek to Speak Society. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Dr. Rutley. You're welcome. Thanks, Neil. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms or on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time <laughs>